The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Mark. Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became dazzling white, such as no fuller on earth could bleach them. Then Elijah appeared to them along with Moses. And they were conversing with Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus in reply, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He hardly knew what to say, they were so terrified. Then a cloud came, casting a shadow over them. From the cloud came a voice. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone but Jesus alone with them. As they were coming down from the mountain, he charged them not to relate what they had seen to anyone, except when the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what rising from the dead meant. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise you, Lord Jesus Christ. St. Thomas Aquinas said that since grace builds on nature, every experience that Jesus had, no matter how supernatural, no matter how miraculous, has an analogous experience in ordinary human beings. And that if you want to know what a miracle means, look at that analogous experience. So let me tell you about something that is kind of like a lesser transfiguration. Mother Teresa began her ministry among the poor in Calcutta in the 60s, but it was only around 1969 that she became known outside of India. And in 1969, the BBC decided to do a segment on her in their version of 60 Minutes. They sent to interview her a man who was renowned for being a debunker. He debunked mythologies, he unmasked con artists, he was a real cynic. He was also uh, an atheist, or I should say an agnostic. So they sent him to ask her hard questions. Was she really as good as her reputation, or was that just all frosting and not really any cake? He went and they had footage of her and her sisters taking care of the poor and the dying, but they didn't anticipate the building that she would be caring for these people in. She was dirt poor. And the only building that she had was an old temple to the goddess Kali. And Kali was always worshipped in darkness. So there were only these little tiny windows way up high, right next to the roof and the walls of this very tall building. So it was very dim, and they hadn't brought lights in order to illuminate this room. And so they thought, there's just no point in making any film because it's not going to show up. It's going to look like it's pitch black. But they had come this far, so they decided that they should do the filming. Meanwhile, Muggeridge interviews Mother Teresa and asks her, is it true that you withhold pain medication from people and tell them that it's a gift from God? She said, no. The fact is that I have more and more people coming to me because people in India know about this place now, and I don't have enough pain medication. So what I do when I can't give them medication is tell them to offer it up. 
but I don't willingly withhold drugs from them. I just don't have them to give. So I tell them that their pain can have meaning if they offer it to the Lord. It's the best that I can do. The best that I can give them is to show them a loving face in their last days and their last moments. The filming was done. They went back to England, developed the film, and lo and behold, instead of everything being pitch black, everything was bathed in a golden glow. The sisters themselves seemed to have light emanating from them. It was amazing. The, the technicians, the cameramen, they said there's no explanation for how this could be. It was just too dark. There's no scientific explanation for how this film could ever be visible, more, more, much less that it could be so gloriously lit. In fact, Muggeridge was worried that people would say that it all had been a sham, that somehow it had been manipulated because the glow was so ethereal. He went back to India and interviewed Mother Teresa again and asked her, how do you explain this? And she said, it's love. Wherever the darkness is, the love shines the brighter. We don't have a lot of technology to give these people. We don't have any cure for them. All we can do is give them love. They've been abandoned. We show them dignity and care and love. And love shines brightest in dark places. I think that is a good image for what happens in the Transfiguration. Because these are dark times for Jesus. He has told the people that unless they eat his flesh and drink his blood, they have no life within them. And people began to think he's advocating cannibalism. And people left. He asks Peter, will you leave too? And Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of everlasting life. But the fact is that a lot of people left, and now he doesn't have the crowd supporting him. Now his enemies can pounce on him because there is no one to defend him. Before ascending the mountain, he's told the apostles that they are going to go to Jerusalem and that he is going to be crucified. Peter says, oh, God forbid that should ever happen to you. He rebukes Jesus. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You're not thinking as God does. He brings them up the mountain in a time of great emotional turmoil. He's about to go to be crucified. And there he is given a reminder of who he is and just how much he is willing to sacrifice, how much he loves. Moses, the giver of the law, and Elijah, the giver of prophecy, are both there to remind him that he is the fulfillment of generations and that he has willingly come to earth out of love to save his people. And that love glows within him to such an extent that he is dazzling. And the apostles see that. And they will need to see that because these same three men are the men that will see him in the Garden of Gethsemane when he's sweating blood. These three men who will see an agonized Christ needed to see a glorified Christ. It was dark times. They were dark times. And yet the love shined all the brighter. The love of Christ for his father and for his people. One more story, a little bit more personal. I was taught in seminary by Sister Mary Amel Panay. It was toward the end of her teaching career. In fact, after only a few years of studying with her, she had a stroke which would end her teaching career. But she was a great woman. Any woman religious, any nun, who has ever studied the history of women religious in America will know her name. 
because she was instrumental in gaining greater education for women religious throughout the 20th century. And when Vatican II came along, she made sure that women got taught about Vatican II and implemented the dictates of Vatican II, a hero among women religious. But she also taught in seminary, and she inspired me. And she was such a big wig that she got little St. Vincent de Paul, not a very important seminary, to host great big theologians because they knew she was there. And when Sister Mary, Sister Mary Amel invited you, you didn't say no. So we were privileged to hear many great theologians. After I was ordained, I was asked to go and get a doctorate. And I contacted Sister Mary Amel Panay. She was already out of teaching. She had had a stroke. And I said, what do you think I should study? She said, study moral theology. That's what she taught me. And I said, people are telling me I should go to Rome. Don't go to Rome. You go to Rome for canon law. Go to Louvain for, for moral theology. And I did exactly what she said I should do. Went to school, got my degree, came back, and heard that she wasn't doing so well. The Catholic Theological Society of America was having their convention in Detroit, and she was only down the road about 30 miles in a rehabilitation center for the IHM nuns in Monroe, Michigan. So I went to see her. She was very debilitated, but she was happy to see me, and she gave me this glorious smile. We spent some time together. It was difficult for her to talk, so I did most of the talking. She had a few words of wisdom for me. And then at the end, when it was time to go, she was smiling so much. And I said to her, Sister, you have the most glorious smile I have ever seen. And she said to me, thank you, because that is the only thing that I have left to give. Now, that was not said out of self-pity. She was saying that out of, in a sense, pride that she had given her all throughout her entire life. And now, being debilitated, all she had left was a smile. But she gave it gladly. She gave it joyfully. She gave it lovingly. Then she motioned for me to come down. I thought, well, I'll give her a hug. And as I got closer to her, she reached up and she said, you went to Louvain, and she tousled my hair. <laughs> and suddenly, her face glowed. Was it the light coming through the window? Was it the tears in my eyes realizing this was the last time I would ever see her? I don't know. But when I say her face glowed, I am not using a poetic image. That woman's face glowed. I believe that there are people in this world who have been touched by Jesus, who have seen his glory, and that glory is reflected on their faces. They shine light in dark places. They shine love where there is indifference. Let us pray, too, that we might get a glimpse of Jesus and that the glow of the saints might rub off on us, that we, by our holiness, by our goodness, by our care, might give other people a transfiguring moment as well. For as Jesus says in the Gospel, no one lights a light and puts it under a bushel basket. It's put on a lampstand to light the whole house so must your light shine before others that they may see your goodness and give glory to your heavenly Father.